Amen. If you would find 1 Corinthians chapter 11, our text this morning will be found in verses 2 through 16. And as you're turning there, it's not lost on any of us that it's hot in here. We have fans going on. It was not a ploy to make us feel more, more uh, culturally 1 Corinthians, 1st uh, uh, century Corinthian. Uh, but we know that it's hot and we expect that uh, God has good design for us to sit in here this way. But we certainly want to turn our heart's attention to his word. And if you would, as I read, hear the word of the living God from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let's seek his face and ask for his help again now. Father, we, we ask simply what has been asked previously, that you would help us. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come in power and revive us according to this book. We pray that with such a passage before us, with so much culture in it, so many hard sayings, that you would help us, that you would, Holy Spirit, lead us into the truth of Christ as you love to do. This is your book, O oh God, and we pray now that as we open it, that you would speak. Not, not a man in man-centered wisdom, but you, O oh God, would come in demonstration of spirit and power that our faith would rest not on men but on you we pray this all for the glory of Christ in his name 
Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, landing now as we've already read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We know that there was a letter, certainly letters, written to Paul, and Paul here we know already from chapter 11 verse 2 that he's responding to their claim that they remembered him and were keeping traditions that he passed on to them. And he commends them here in verse 2 for doing so, but in Paul fashion, as he typically does, we learn from chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 that they weren't really holding fully to the traditions that he left them. And so in his typical fashion, he's identifying grace, commending them, and he's also going to let them have it. And he begins in this chapter with the practice of women and head coverings, and then he'll move on to the Lord's Supper, and then in chapter 12, he moves on to the spiritual gifts. So we have a, a new section, as it were, here in these chapters where Paul is addressing the worship service. He's addressing the worship service. And if we're honest, this is one of those passages, probably like a minor prophet, that we have tended to skip over or we've scratched our heads over. And so even as we read this morning already, what, what is Paul talking about? How is God the head of Christ? God is God and Jesus is God. So if that's true, how is God the head of Christ? Or if we take this and we try to apply it today, if I pray with a, basket, with a baseball hat on, am I disgracing my head? What does Paul mean by such a thing? What is a head covering? I mean, he talks about it all the way through the passage. Why does Paul care about the length of hair? Why is it that it's too long or too short? And is Paul being chauvinistic? As we read this passage, he keeps saying that women are created for man's sake and on and on. Well, it's no wonder that commentators, and I've read a lot of commentators as I've studied this passage, agree that this is one of those hard-to-understand passages in the Bible. Part of the issue is that we, we, we fully don't really understand what the custom was. Are we talking about a, a small piece of fabric when he speaks about head coverings? Are we talking about veils? Are we talking about a shawl? Or perhaps he's just talking about long hair and putting it up in a bun. We're, we're so far removed from Corinth and their customs that it's hard for us to understand what Paul's saying at every turn of the passage. However, and this is a big however, not understanding what Paul meant by the actual custom does not keep us from understanding Paul's main point in the passage. Or, or to say it another way, though the what of the custom certainly mattered, Paul writes about it here, the why of the custom is what Paul is writing about. Or maybe to say it another way, as simply as I can, foundationally, though he's talking about head coverings, foundationally, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, is not really about head coverings. And again, you may say, Jim, he's said head covering over and over and over. He's used the word head. What's he talking about? True, that is true. But ultimately, the adornment or the covering that Paul is speaking about points to something greater in the passage. The covering represents something, something more profound, more excellent, 
more glorious. It points to a God-designed, God-purposed, God-ordained, orderly worship unto Him. The practice of covering the hair is a symbol of humility and submission that reveals the glory of the one true God by pointing to His design and His order. Well, if we just go back to the book of 1 Corinthians, they've been divided from the very beginning over teachers. They've been boasting in worldly wisdom. They were tolerating incest in chapter 5. They were suing one another. They were looking past sexual immorality. They were eating food offered to idols. And in chapter 11, the issues Paul deals with are in the corporate worship service now. Women are not adorning themselves the way they should be when the community gathers. The Lord's Supper is all messed up and the use of the spiritual gifts are way off the mark. Pridefully being used instead of for the edification of the body. And all of these things are stirring up confusion in the service and also distorting the testimony of this church to outsiders who come in. Well, this illustration that I'm about to give you is not original to me. I actually heard it when Mark Dever preached on this passage, but very helpful. He says, imagine, if you're a non-believer, just imagine for a moment walking into a worship service. And when you walk into that worship service, all the women are immodest, scantily clad, very provocatively dressed. And it's being led, this meeting, by a very forceful woman in the midst of the congregation, saying things like, we need to re-understand marriage and sexuality. A wife should be able to have the same sexual freedom that her husband does, and we'll get to that in the culture. Well, that would certainly make us feel uncomfortable. We probably can't even fathom that as we sit here this morning. What would outsiders think of a service like that? What would they learn about our God? What kind of a testimony is shared between Brothers and sisters, when you see that kind of thing, well, in his illustration, he states the obvious as the non-Christian leaves. He continues to go on in the illustration. They may say something like, wow, that, that Christianity isn't really much different than us out here. They pretty much look like we do, and they act like we do. They weren't very clear about this Jesus, and they seem pretty flexible when it comes to the book. And so that's why Paul is addressing the issue. Paul knows that it's crucial. He feels the danger of the surrounding culture coming into the church. How we we worship matters to God. God has given us instruction on how to do so. How we conduct ourselves in our gatherings reflects what we believe about Him. How men and women relate to one another matters. How the Lord's Supper is taken matters. How we use our gifts matter. Just a little disorder is disorder enough. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul's concerned that the testimony of the congregation is conveying something to one another as members of the church and to outsiders. So Paul does, as we've said, what Paul does and deals very specifically with the issue. issue, Armed with a Christward remedy to their situation. Well, as we consider the verses before us, that was intro. I have two points and a list of applications that I want us to see together. I believe the points come very directly from the text. First, we're going to see Paul's message. 
What was Paul's message, the very main point that Paul was after? And then secondly, Paul's arguments. The way that the verses line up, Paul is arguing in several ways for his main point. He argues from theology, he argues from culture, he argues from creation, and he argues from nature about why ultimately the way that women should cover their heads. And then finally, we'll look at some application. What does it mean for us today? Well, point number one, Paul's message. Paul's message, worship that reflects God's order. Let's just look again at verse 4. Let me read it for you. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Look at verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 10. Considering Paul's main point, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, whatever conclusion, as we think about Paul's main point, you or I make about a head covering, whatever it was, a veil, a shawl, long hair, piece of fabric, it doesn't change the fact that Paul's concern about how women... We just read it all, how women are adorning themselves in the public worship gathering. According to these passages, they are to do so in a certain way. And Paul's concerned with order, a God-designed order in the worship service. So the way that they adorn themselves will either serve that order, or the way that they don't adorn themselves will be an influence towards disorder. Paul says over and over that this service should reflect God's design. Well, let's import ourselves back into Paul's day. We must do that to understand this text. So back in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, there was a women's liberation movement going on about this time. We have to understand that back then it, it wasn't outside the boundaries for Roman men to have multiple partners inside the marriage okay it was okay for them generally speaking to be unfaithful to their marriage covenant and for women it was the opposite so it's somewhat universally accepted for the man but for the women it's shameful they would get in trouble for that it wasn't culturally acceptable to do those things so they'd be punished severely for such things and so it was common it was a common custom for a woman to wear a head covering to, to veil or, as they did, display their loyalty to their husbands. Okay, so the head covering was a, a sign of loyalty, submission, modesty, faithfulness. And we actually have a double standard, obviously, here, but, but what happens? We have a women's liberation movement. And with changing times, those women say, I want what my husband has. I want sexual freedoms. I want to do what I want to do. No more modesty, no more submission, no more honor. I want to do what I want to do. So instead of burning makeup and undergarments like they did in the 60s in our day, 
the women in Paul's day decide not to wear their head coverings in public anymore, which in turn does what? Brings dishonor on her own head and her husband and her marriage and her own character. Now also we must understand that back in this day, long hair was a glory to a woman. Paul says that in verse 15. There's something about long flowing hair that is a woman's glory. And Paul says to cover that. Because in that day, there was also something very sensual tied to the woman's hair. So again, we're importing more culture into this. You know who didn't wear head coverings back then? Typically those, typically, who were unmarried, which certainly would be okay, but also the immoral and adulterers, prostitutes. If they weren't going to wear coverings on their heads, their heads were shaved so there was no confusion about who they were. It's kind of a scarlet letter. This is an immoral woman. To help us understand culture even more, Brian Rossner, he's got a helpful commentary. I want to read this quote. It's an extensive quote, but it helps us kind of set ourselves there. The evidence that some or even many women were not covering their heads in worship may have been a point of significant concern with the traditional sense of sexual and moral propriety. The traditional costume of the Roman matron, someone who's married, signified her modesty and chastity. For a married woman to neglect covering her head while in public would traditionally be understood as a sign of her withdrawing herself from matronage, marriage. And the decision of a Roman husband to divorce his wife for doing so would amount to a ratification of the exclusion her bare head had expressed. So Paul is concerned, he goes on to say, above all with the infiltration of Roman and Corinthian values and lifestyles into the church. Do you see what he's concerned about? What's happening of special interest is the influence of sexual immorality and idolatry for which pagan Gentiles were infamous in Jewish thinking. A move towards the abandonment of the female head covering would have struck many at the time as a move towards a more licentious, a more sexually provocative way of appearing in public, precisely the kind of social influence Paul is anxious to avoid. So in, in, in many ways, the covering itself was like a wedding band. And so you take the, the head covering off, take the wedding band off. Add to the obvious shame the woman brings to herself. This was an honor-shame culture. We'll look at that here shortly. And to her husband. So now what we have in Corinth, in this Christian community, they're struggling to practice their freedom in Christ. That's what they've heard from Paul. If men and women are joint heirs in Christ, then what's the big deal with removing the veil or head covering? So do you see in that cultural setting, when you reread those verses and understand what's going on, why it was such a big deal? She's communicating something in that service about herself and her relationship to her husband as she prays and prophesies with her head uncovered. By her behavior, she was implying or could imply, rather, really implying immorality, immodesty. She was giving the appearance of being unfaithful and rejecting her husband's leadership. So it was dishonor, and it was a shameful act, and it brought confusion. Remember the illustration earlier, and disorder into the worship service. And could you imagine what outsiders, what they felt like when they came into such a place? 
Well, God's design is one of order and not confusion. He's created us in our relationships with one another to be a certain way. So what was their adornment, their behavior in this area pointing to? God's design or something else? What Paul is after is bigger than the head covering. There is a fundamental biblical principle that Paul is arguing for. The head covering, again, was a symbol, a cultural symbol that pointed to a God-honoring, God-designed relationship, a relationship with Christ-honoring authority and a Christ-lavish submission, one of honor and love for one another, interdependence, we'll see shortly, and mutuality. The women in the congregation of Corinth were to present themselves in a way that clearly pointed to their submission to God's design of honoring male leadership in the church and the home. So Paul essentially is answering the question for them as we see through the passage, how does our masculinity and femininity play out in our gatherings? Well, it must be according to God's design and his order. Well, that's point number one, what, what Paul is aiming at. He, he certainly is saying to them, the women in the congregation were to present themselves in a certain way that clearly pointed to their submission to God's design of honoring male leadership in the church and the home. So now Paul is going to argue in several ways for his point. Point number two, let's look at Paul's arguments. Paul will argue for this principle through the rest of the passage in several ways. Now, I've distilled these down into four. They're going to overlap one another. We have theology, culture, creation, and nature. Let's look at verse 3, which is really a foundational passage for the rest of his arguments. Verse 3, the theological argument. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And we've already seen that Paul is arguing for orderly worship. In the spirit of the day with the women's liberation movement, those kinds of things are creeping into the congregation. Instead of participating in the worship services in an orderly fashion, disorder had crept in, as we've said. Maybe they said, hey, Paul, some of us wonder why we even need to wear our head coverings to distinguish between the sexes. Aren't we all one in Christ? There's no longer male or female. Perhaps those were the kinds of things they were asking him. Well, Paul's about to argue for his main point from theology. We just read verse 3, which is God's design and order. If we pull the relationships out of this passage, what do we see? Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Well, in this argument, Paul is pointing the Corinthians, to an authority structure. He's, he's pressing them towards authority and submission by saying what he's saying here. Now, one of the problems, if you study this passage, that many commentators are back and forth on is what does this text mean when it says head? What does it mean when it says head? Is it talking about authority preeminence, source, and to be honest, many of them don't agree on what it means. Many of them who are smarter than me are still debating that. But as you consider the context and you get under all of the words, 
Paul is really pressing the word authority into the argument. And even if you land on the meaning of source, there's also a sense that with the source you also have authority. But in verse 3, Paul is arguing that there is an authority and submissive relationship. Or we could say very plainly, everyone has a head. I was very helped by Phil Newton. He's a local pastor here who preached on this passage and he says this about these relationships I think it's helpful for us to hear here are the three points that Paul makes in this passage if Christ is the head of every man that's what Paul says then every man engaged in corporate worship should display submission to him by the way he engages in corporate worship if the man is the head of a woman meaning if a husband is the head of a wife now now I'll pause there for a second He uses the same word to speak about husband, wife, man, woman in the passage. I think the thrust of the passage is the husband-wife relationship, but certainly it applies in many ways to men and women specifically. Well, he goes on to say, Paul is primarily speaking to wives, but women are not exempt. Then the wife should display this submission by the way she presents herself in corporate worship. It's what we already said. If God is the head of Christ... In that the economy of the Trinity establishes the subordination of the Son of the Father, Son to the Father, rather, then that should not be confused by men and women who profess to know Him as Lord, failing to show order in the church. Okay, we're going to get to all that. But God's design, very plainly from this passage, is that we are all under authority. God's design is that we all have a head. Women, men, and Paul says even here, God is Christ's. So his theological argument is that our relationships should be a reflection of a Trinitarian relationship in this passage. That should be reflected in our services and our home. Now, it would not be surprising to me, as I've said all that, that some of you would be saying to yourself, he used the word subordination in Trinitarian relationship. And you perked up and you wondered if I would go all the way with that line of thinking, is Paul saying that Christ in his essence, is less than the Father. Does he have less dignity? Is he worth less than the Father? Is that what Paul's saying, this subordination? The short answer is no. And so many heresies in the past have been written and uh, uh, have come from that. The Son is not lesser in worth or dignity, as some have taught. This verse grounds our relationships with a parallel to God's relationship to Christ. So we have to understand first, any comparison that we make with the Trinity cannot be a one-to-one parallel, right? God is God, and we are not. But what Paul is doing in this passage is he's pointing us to an analogy between the relationships. And where is this authority submission of Christ to the Father most clearly seen? In the Gospel. Right? It's most clearly seen in the gospel. And even if we go behind the word Christ in this passage, speaking about the Messiah, the structure of the passage suggests an emphasis on his humanity and his work of redemption. There is one God, three persons. All same in essence. But in Christ's incarnation, there is a functional submission. This relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Philippians 2. 
have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, Jesus is God, equal in essence, he's not inferior, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, functional submission, being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's head over all. But there has never been a greater submission manifested that when the God-man stepped into the realm of humanity, dirt under his feet, sweat on his brow, walking in full obedience to his Father as he marches to Calvary to die in the place of sinners, bearing the full weight of his Father's wrath. He says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. My food is to do his will all through the Gospels. Not mine, but thy will be done. This, the Lord of glory, humbled himself. Humbled himself, obedient to death, and he was highly exalted from the grave by his Father. Sacrifice accepted. So in the Gospel, in the inbreaking of God to our soil, the Creator steps into his creation in the form of a bondservant, the one mediator between God and man. In this we find perfect submission and a perfect sacrificial death on our behalf. What does Hebrews 5, 7 tell us? In the days of his flesh, submission, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Just a few chapters ahead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again we see this wonderful picture of the mediator's submission. Verses 27 and 28. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And in the incarnation, a submission to his Father to come save those his Father gave him. Now friend, if you're here this morning, what you've just heard about Christ is related to the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done to reconcile sinners to God through his death and resurrection. And you may be wondering what we're talking about when we say good news. What do we mean by that? Well, we, we're going to get to creation, but, and we've sang so much about it this morning, but God created everything for his glory. And if we go back to the account in Genesis 1, that included men and women. 
He said, let us make man in our image. There's the Trinity. Our first parents were Adam and Eve, and they were told not to eat from the tree. They had wonderful fellowship with God. He walked with them, but they sinned. And they, they, they worshipped the creation rather than, rather than the creator. And because God is holy and man is not, Sin brings forth death, punishment from a holy God. Well, Jesus comes. We've already spoken about this. Jesus comes, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He comes to this earth, fully God, fully man, perfectly obeys. He's the perfect man. When we think about manhood, he is the perfect man. And he dies on a cross, absorbing all the wrath, of a righteous God and he was raised from the dead and all those who trust in him and repent from their sins will have forgiveness of sins and be given God's own goodness his righteousness Jesus's righteousness credited to his account we need someone else's goodness that's the gospel that we're speaking about the gospel that we believe and Paul is arguing that the relationships in the church between men and women point back to the relationship between father and son and son in church so we're all under authority and we do see it in the gospel we all have a head and in our relationships we are all to demonstrate submission and authority well this verse also teaches us that there's no inferiority in this relationship yes there's differing roles and functions and we're going to get to that in a minute but as we look to Christ in his relationship with the father we know that from this book that they were one We've already said that I and the Father are one, one in essence. But from the picture that Paul is painting for us, our relationships, one of authority and submission, point to being equal. We are one in Christ, male and female, but there are distinct roles. And that's what he's pointing us back to. And that's why he argues that women should adorn themselves in a certain way because it displays God's good design. So he's, or, he's arguing theologically. Number two, now he's going to argue from culture. Look at verses four through six. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. We've already touched on this a little bit before. Paul's arguing here from the cultural context that they're in, which they lived, and he's addressing both men and women. Though the thrust of Paul's argument is towards the behavior of women, men were certainly not exempt from what was going on here. We learn from this passage that if they prayed or prophesied with something on their heads, they disgraced their heads. Bruce Winter, who is a scholar who's written extensively on Corinth, noted that elite men in Rome would often offer sacrifices to idols with togas on their heads. So what were Corinthian men doing when they prayed with heads covered? They were mingling pagan practice with the worship service. They could have easily been bringing attention to their own social status as well. We could also take this argument one step further and say they weren't supposed to do it because that's what the women were supposed to do. So men 
were to look like men when they were in the service and women were to look like women. Now we have Paul speaking directly to gender. Our outward appearances must reflect our gender. To do anything else brings confusion and disorder is what Paul is saying. We also have to understand that Paul lived back in a shame and honor culture, which is very foreign to us here in the West. He notes that those who don't cover their heads in verse 5 while praying or prophesying are the same as the women whose head is shaved. And then with a bit of sarcasm, Paul says, if you're not going to cover your head, you should just cut your hair. Now, short hair or shaven hair communicated several things. We've already touched on those. One, they would look like they were dressing like men. They had short hair. So they would be shamefully depicting themselves as a man. Every woman with short hair would or should have been rather ashamed. And then we've talked about the scarlet letter that a shaved head was to a woman. Adultery, immorality. So to have one's head uncovered was the same as having a shaved head, according to Paul, which spoke shamefully to a woman's character. So he's arguing now from culture. So you import that into the worship service again and would have communicated a rebellious, independent spirit. So by not adorning their head in a God-designed way, they bring dishonor to themselves. And I believe the verse teaches also to their husbands and ultimately to Christ who is head over all. So he argues from culture. Now, if that's not enough, Paul now is going to argue from creation. So let's look at that argument that he argues in verses 7 through 9. Again, he's arguing that the women should adorn themselves in a certain way because it points to something glorious. Verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So now from creation, Paul is going to argue that we are to make much of him through the roles that we have been given. So this is going to take us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now man and women, man and woman were both created in God's image. He doesn't say it that way here. But we know from this book that that is true, that man and woman are created both in God's image. That can't be disputed. But what does he mean when he says that man was created in the glory of God and woman the glory of man. Well, it, it means at least two things from the verses that surround the passage. Women came from man, so she is to honor or glory in her husband. Now, if you go to verse 15, you talk about the glory of the woman's hair. It was her honor. It's the same word there. So it means that woman came from man, so she's to honor her husband in that role. And two, she was created to be his helper. So she was created for him. And so what Paul is doing is he's arguing for the adorning of women in the congregation to be what we see in creation, the created order. So one, he's already said that there's an authority-submission relationship. See the humility of Christ. We looked at that theologically. Two, men are to be masculine and women are to be feminine. And, and three, women... and and men were created equal in God's image, but distinct in their roles. 
So now he's pulling the picture of creation for this church to see the distinction in the roles to prove his point. So the question is, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And I want us to go back to the creation account for just a moment. So if you turn with me to Genesis 1, I'm going to read some of these verses here for us because Paul is pointing back to this. Verse 26, Paul says, or I'm sorry, Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now flip over to chapter 2, verse 15. So that was kind of the big picture, and now he's drilling down into his creation with some detail. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So now we have a role for the man. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave no names, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She called, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now some of you remember that, that we walked years ago, our young people, and rooted through a biblical womanhood and manhood. And I had the joy of leading this class and almost every week no matter where we were whether we were talking about womanhood and manhood in the home or in the church we would always end up back in this account because this is where we see first and foremost God's created design for us and so I would ask questions like who created man and woman according to these verses the answer is God gender or our maleness and our femaleness is a good gift who gave it to us God. The Bible begins by saying that men and women are made in the image of God. True or false? They share different value, worth, and dignity and importance. One is superior over the other. It's obviously false based on this passage. Well, what role has God given the, the man according to this passage, I would ask them? Well, we read it, cultivating and keeping. What role has God given the woman according to this passage? A suitable helper so there is a leadership role given to Adam an authority he's to cultivate to work and to keep 
He's to lovingly protect his wife. There is a great responsibility given to him to care for her. Do you not recall that it was Adam who was held responsible for abandoning his post when the serpent came in? And Eve is given a beautiful role of helping a suitable, a, a good fit, a compliment, complementarianism. You've probably heard that word. We'll talk about it more later. So she is no less in value or dignity. She's made in the image of God. She's not less than man. She's been fearfully and wonderfully made with a different role. And that is what Paul is pointing to in this passage. The woman should adorn herself in a way, in, in his context, with a covering, because it displays her happy submission to the authority of male leadership when she prays. Paul's point is that it honors her head, the, the source in this passage. Woman came from man. To refrain would be to dishonor her head. Right? And, 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 and so that there's no confusion for all of us, Paul is arguing from creation, not the fall. So we can't say, well, they are less because of the fall. Paul's arguing from creation, not the fall in this passage. Has the fall distorted this relationship? Yes, I hope we would all say that it has. But the creation order presses us towards a perfectly God-purposed masculinity and femininity that is demonstrated with cultivating for the man and keeping and a suitable helper with the woman. Well, Paul continues under this heading with verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. So within a slew of very hard to understand passages, this might be the hardest one to understand and people are all over the place with it. Most people end up with the sign of authority being the covering that points to the authority that the man has. And when we think about worship and how all this is about orderly worship, we can see very clearly that those angels who take part in the worship focused on God's glory. So Paul argues from creation. And when he says the glory of man, he's pointing back to the creation order. Women are made in the likeness of God just like men, but there are distinct roles as God has designed. Well, with all of this talk about roles and submission to authority, male headship and women submitting, Paul understands that those in the congregation there may think about men being more valuable than women. And if we look Later in this passage, in verses 11 and 12, there is this exception clause that clears the air. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has the, his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Man is the head of woman. Man does not originate from woman, but... Woman for man. Paul's not anti-woman, as some have supposed. He qualifies this in verse 11, that there is a mutuality and an interdependence between the sexes. So if you're breathing right now, 
I trust that you all are, me too, then you were born and you came from a woman, literally. And so Paul is pressing towards the temptation that some would say that men have more dignity than the woman. And he's saying there's a mutuality, an interdependence. That thought is, that thought is wrong. And even if we uh, even considered more of what Paul's writings, if you, even if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, do you remember when Paul says the, the, the woman's body is her husband's? But he also says the husband's body is hers. We think about Christianity, it's really countercultural to what was going on there. And Paul's writing here that his body is the wife's. Christianity is the place where that kind of chauvinistic thought should be crushed. God's design, mutual interdependence. Well, we'll get to application in a moment. But this should be said here for us. Brothers, if there's anything in you that thinks that this passage makes you more important than a woman, you clearly do not understand what Paul is talking about. And I would suggest that you have a problem with the gospel. Well, finally and briefly, before we consider some application, Paul argues from the fourth position from nature. Look at verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourself, Paul says, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So after everything that Paul has said, when he says, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He expects that with the arguments that he's already made that everyone in the congregation should say no. But he appeals to nature and says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. Now this is where culture and creation come together. Nature as a teacher, as an instructor. Long hair on a man, Paul says, is a dishonor. And long locks on a lady is honorable. Nature and instinct do speak to femininity and masculinity. What's appropriately masculine and feminine has been placed naturally in us. Right? So it shouldn't be shocking for us to hear what Romans 1 says that for their women exchange the natural function for which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and so on and so forth there's something in nature that we understand I want to dress like a man ladies you want to dress like a woman there's something in us naturally Paul's point here, if a woman adorns herself like a man in the congregation, she's confusing the distinction between man and woman and therefore bringing disorder to the service. We've said it many times. Therefore, wear a covering. That's Paul's argument. Well, in verse 16, he sums it all up by saying, if one is inclined to be contentious, you just don't want to do it. We have no other practice. This is what we do, nor have the churches of God. So this wasn't just a Corinthian issue. Paul is saying, nor have the churches of God. 
Well, as we think about the conclusion, the, the reality is, is that we're not very far from Corinth. Right? In a way, we're Corinth 2.0. If we just look around in our day, on the outside, transgenderism, sexual liberation, no one blushes anymore. Men look like women. Women look like men. We live in Corinth. And so a passage like this is a grace to us. The underlying principle of the passage is so important. It's the question we asked at the beginning. How does our masculinity and femininity play out in our gatherings? The head covering was a, a pointer to a relationship of love-infused submission and love-soaked authority, one of morality and modesty and honor, mutual respect in the roles, and equality with distinction. This is God-designed worship, the kind of serving among the congregation that honors the head of the church, Christ, and it doesn't confuse us or the outside, and it testifies to the love of God in redeeming sinners through Christ. Well, as we close with a few points of application, let me just put my cards on the table. I'm speaking for myself. I'm persuaded by the scriptures that women do not have to wear head coverings today. I believe that the head covering was a local cultural practice that doesn't transcend cultures. I don't believe that we must follow the custom literally in our day, much like greeting one another with a holy kiss. The principle is to greet one another lovingly, but we don't hold to that as well. D.A. Carson, wonderful Bible scholar, has noted this about Bible interpretation. All of these sorts of problems, and he's speaking about symbols and culture when he wrote this, are bound up with the fact that God has not given us a culturally neutral revelation, this book. It's not culturally neutral. What he has revealed in words is tied to specific places and cultures. Every other culture is going to have to do some work to understand what God meant when he said certain things in a particular language or a specific time and place. So I'm not persuaded biblically that we should literally hold to wearing head coverings, but I am persuaded, like Paul, that the principle underneath the covering an adornment of love and modesty and honor and submission in marriage and in the church, this complementarianism, I am persuaded that we should hold to this, that that's Paul's main point in the passage underneath everything. It points to the one, capital O, who created in wisdom and for his glory. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, first, I've thrown the word around complementarianism. Some of you probably know what that means, but let me just define it for you simply. It's the view that Paul is proposing in this text. Both men and women are created in God's image, equal in worth and dignity, but with distinct roles. If you hear the word egalitarianism, it's a theological view that holds to equality in personhood, but with no gender-based limitations of what roles or functions can be fulfilled. So they argue for biblical equality across the board. Complementarianism is the position held by your elders, and it's also what we believe and teach. Well, a word to the ladies. Let me just say this. I'm so thankful for you. I want you to hear that. Your pastors are thankful for you. Your pastors love you. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to hear your prayers and praises in this gathering today. There were so many ladies. I was encouraged as Asha prayed and 
Lauren prayed and Angie prayed. And Paul clearly expects that the ladies in a service will pray and prophesy. But this congregation is filled with godly ladies who desire to follow Christ, who love his word and seek to magnify his worth. And I'm not just talking about wives, young ladies, unmarried, following Christ, all of you with that internal adornment that Peter talks about, all of you gifted by the Holy Spirit with gifts to edify the body. So I want you to hear me say on behalf of the elders that you're a gift. And in fear and trembling, I praise God that we don't have head covering issues here. So I would encourage you to continue to look unto him and pursue him. The greatest thing that you can do for you and your, married, if, your marriage, if you're married in this church, is to, like Mary, put yourself at the Lord's feet and listen to his word. To look unto Christ with glad-hearted submission to the one who submitted himself to his father in your devotions to your husband, to look to him who honored his father, to look and gaze upon Christ who is your loving head, who gave himself for you. Let me also th say thank you for being patient with your pastors. We want this congregation and our worship to look so complementary in it. We, we, we want it to mesh. And our desire is for there to be a beautiful complementarianism here and I'm sure that in our gatherings we botched a lot of things so thank you for being patient with us well a word to the men we've already said 1st Corinthians 11 is not a license for you to be an overbearing husband or to say to your wife submit to treat her in an inferior way is that what this passage is about no and to put it in a more uh, frank way Pastor Rick has a stick at his house and he's not afraid to use it. Paul makes it clear that there is a mutuality, an interdependence. And though Paul's words are directed to the ladies, I would suggest to you that the weight of such a passage should land on us. We are to cultivate and keep. We are to lead, protect, and shepherd and love. And we know that we've all failed miserably at this. And we have such a good God who forgives us. We have been given a great responsibility in the home, here. We're to be gentle shepherds. So do you encourage your wife if you're married? Do you make it easy for her to honor you? So let's all in this moment, not in a mystical way, take 1 Corinthians 11 and drive that stake into our hearts and say, oh God, revive us again according to your word. Go meditate on Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 7. Just a couple more. Kids, teenagers, a word for you. You know what a commercial is, right? We all do. A commercial comes on TV or you see a commercial and it's selling you something. We used to say this when we walked through this in the Rooted class. That's what the world is doing to you. Billboards, shows, magazines, they're all trying to tell you what biblical manhood and womanhood is. But the Bible says something very different. It will, it will guide the way. So say, stay tethered to this book and listen to your parents. Pray for your parents. Ask God to bless their marriage and for it to look like the way he wants it to look. And parents, let me say to you, next to the scriptures, the greatest teaching tool you have 
in your arsenal in regards to manhood and womanhood and complementarianism is your marriage. Let your kids see that. Well, congregation, how then shall we worship? Well, we want our services to be filled with the beautiful stamp of Christ-honoring complementarianism where men and women jointly participate in ways that don't draw attention to themselves but to the one that made them where we celebrate gender distinctions and integrate one another's gifts into the service. Our services should be filled with humble God-exalting worship, no vain glory, not to us, but to Him be the glory. Our services should be ordered in such a way that nothing distracts from the centrality of the gospel. Our services should be filled with such an order that reflects that we are all submitting to our head, all of us, to Christ. God wants our hearts in this passage. He wants our practices to reflect what's in that soil that Derek prayed for earlier. Well, I've spent the last couple of evenings with Augusta and Miranda, two young people that live in our home, talking about complementarianism and asking them about why all this matters. So just take head coverings off the table. Why is Paul so concerned about these things? And over and over and over, the answer was obedience. Obedience to God. This is what he says. We want a clear picture of the gospel. We want it to be for his glory and not ours. Now if we go back to the illustration as we close and think about that illustration where we said let's all just pretend as an unbeliever coming into a service. Now what happens if that never changes and that illustration is true? Where provocative dress is in the church, there's role reversals, sexual freedom what do we have then well we have those who come in from the outside unaffected by the gospel believers are confused scriptures are dishonored and now there's questions about the validity of this book families implode because now there's no gender distinctions those are gone there's a moral and sexually Moral and sexual purity is out the window and the gospel is marred. You can take it or leave it. So that's the importance in this matter. God is dishonored and the head of the church, Jesus Christ, the King, His glory is concealed as it were as we think about this illustration. Well, that's a lot and may God help us to be doers of His word. Let's seek his face together. God, we pray that you would, again, revive our hearts according to your word. Holy Spirit, we trust that you will apply this word to our hearts, and we ask, we ask that it would bear fruit, bear fruit for eternity. And God, our prayer is that you would make us doers of your word. We pray that this congregation, Grace Church, our services would reflect in such a clear way your design, your order, your purposes. And we pray that as a congregation in all of this that we would say with hearts, hearts burning what words we're about to sing, Christ is ours forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.